Hello, everybody. Welcome to the December edition of our Natural Wine Club. Uh, as I'm sure you're now aware, things have changed up a little bit. Uh, we got a notice from the AGLC, so the Alberta Gaming and Liquor Commission, uh, telling us that basically we couldn't really run the club anymore. Uh, luckily, after making us jump through a couple, uh, again, very unnecessary hoops, uh, we're allowed to continue on sharing wine with you. Um, but you know, moving forward, uh, it's going to be the individual wine shops in charge of advertising. We're not even allowed mentioning them by name. Uh, so it's a little bit infuriating, but we're, we're figuring out how to navigate it slowly and surely. Um, this month's wine club is, uh, is incredible. Uh, we really went out of our way to find some cool wines for you. Um, we really set aside wines that we knew we could easily sell and decided to put them in the wine club instead just because we wanted to share them so badly with uh, everybody who's been so loyal to us over the last, I guess, two and a half years we've been doing this now. Um, so the first producer that we wanted to talk about today uh, is called Claire Naudet. Um, she's an incredible winemaker in Burgundy, which is perhaps the most famous wine region in the world, uh, and perhaps the most famous wine region in France, which is sort of the, the epicenter of the winemaking world. Um, Burgundy itself lies uh, sort of just south and east of Paris. Uh, it's not a particularly long drive, but uh, you know, you're, you're talking about two and a half hours, so less than the time from Calgary to Edmonton. Um, and this region is incredibly uh, varied, but at the same time has a lot of commonalities between different communes. Um, so one of the things that they're most famous for is uh, basically this limestone outcropping where you get this really good combination of, of limestone and clay um, that basically allows for, you know, proper drainage of soils allows the grapes to retain acidity um, because of the direction that this outcropping is facing which is mostly southeast they're able to get uh, an amazing amount of sunshine even this far north in France um, so there's definitely a handful of reasons why this area deserves to be as famous as they are um, in what we would call sort of like uh, the the most most important part of Burgundy um, you sort of have two, it's sort of split between north and south. Um, you have the Cote de Bone um, in the south, which is more famous for white grapes, in particular Chardonnay is the grape variety that you'd see coming from here, although there are um, some really fantastic red grapes, red wines made there as well. Um, and you had the Cote de Nuit, which is sort of the northern half of what we call the, the Cote d'Or, um, which is often called the Golden Slope uh, as a translation. But I've also heard the idea that uh, the translation actually comes from the uh, Le Cote d'Orient, which would mean like the east-facing facing coast, uh, <laughs> coast slope, uh, which would be, again, facing the Orient, as, as it would have been colloquially called. Um, so either way, you sort of have this north and south divide. And what's really interesting is that there's actually a commune directly in the center, uh, and this little commune is called Ladois. And Ladois has often been, uh, 
you know, neglected on wine maps of Burgundy, you'll often see a map of the, the Cote de Nuit and a, a map of the Cote de Bone, but you seldom actually see that connective bit in the middle. And I think this is where some of the most interesting vineyards actually lie. Um, basically, there's, there's sort of a break in these two slopes. Um, there's a little valley sort of directly in between, and it offers for a lot of different aspects um, and maybe a little more variation as far as soil types go. Uh, if you go further back into this valley and up onto the top of the slopes, you have what we call the oat coat. Uh, so there's the oat coat de nuit and the oat coat de bone, which are uh, sort of above their respective communes. And this has historically been seen as sort of vineyards that are less good. Uh, this is where common wines were coming from. Um, it sort of got an appellation name a lot later than most of the other regions in within Burgundy. Um, but a lot of producers now are realizing, hey, there's a ton of potential here, especially with the impacts of, of climate change, making this region quite a bit warmer than it once was and making it harder to make the elegant wines that they're famous for. They need to go to this oat coat, um, so basically the upper slopes, um, in order to get you know, the, the temperatures that they need in order to make these really elegant wines. Um, and so you're starting to see more and more producers invest in this area. Uh, fortunately, it's also a lot cheaper than most of the rest of Burgundy. For any of, uh, for any of you who are really keen on Burgundy, you'll realize the wines are uh, enormously expensive, often hundreds of dollars a bottle, which is why I think Claire Nodane does such a great job as hers are often in a sub hundred dollar range. And, you know, even at her top tier, um, you know, you're, you're getting relative value, uh, at least for the quality level, in my opinion. So she's located sort of directly between these these two famous areas. Um, some of her vines are on one side, some of her vines are on the other side, and some of her vines are actually directly in the middle, which is very exciting. Um, and that's basically where the first wine that we're going to talk about today comes from. Um, the first wine that we have today is called uh, Le Clou 34. Um, this is an Aligoté. Uh, Aligoté is sort of the unsung hero of, um, of Burgundy. Uh, if you think of white grapes in Burgundy, you're almost exclusively thinking of Chardonnay. Um, most of the famous wines, uh, you know, and I, I think it makes up something like over 95% of the plantings in, in Burgundy for white grapes. So if you see a white wine from Burgundy, chances are it, it's it's coming from Chardonnay. Um, but historically, Aligote actually played a really huge part as well. Um, you actually also see things like Pinot Blanc and Pinot Bureau, which is uh, often the, the local name for Pinot Gris, although, again, you don't see them that often. And then if you look north to where uh, Chablis is, which is sort of the northernmost commune of, uh, of Burgundy, you can also see Sauvignon Blanc planted sort of on the outskirts, which is really interesting. Um, it's really quite delicious, actually. Um, but mostly what we're talking about is Chardonnay and then Aligote sort of being... Uh, you know, sort of the 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 second class grape here. Um, a lot of producers over the last sort of twenty years or so have realized the potential uh, of old vine Aligote to make really spectacular wine, really mineral, really focused, um, retaining a lot of the acidity that is essential to um, a wine that's going to age. Uh, and so Claire Nodin has, has stumbled upon a couple extremely old vineyards. Um, this is mostly coming around uh, the, the town that she actually lives in and where she actually makes her wine. 
um, but it's a handful of different plots, uh, you know, tiny little micro vineyards, basically. Um, so you have vineyards planted between 1902 and 1953, I believe, um, with most of it coming from uh, a vineyard planted in 1934, which was sort of like the inspiration for um, for the wine, hence uh, Le Clou Trancat. Um this wine has mesmerized me for years. Uh, I remember the first time I had it was uh, maybe two or three years ago in Montreal. And uh, I was just astounded. I was like, I can't even believe that Aligote can, can taste this good. And then since then, I've really seeked out really amazing Aligote producers. Um, there's a, a gentleman by the name of uh, Sylvain Patay. Uh, and his aligotes in particular are uh, extremely enjoyable. Apparently, they're going to be available in Alberta uh, at some point in the new year via, uh, I think it's Altus who's who's importing them. But those wines are, again, very worth seeking out. Um, but for me, this is about as good as aligote can ever be. Ultra mineral, ultra focused, um, incredibly complex. Um, she's doing some pretty classic winemaking here. Uh, nothing too fancy. This is whole cluster pressing, uh, meaning that they don't take the grapes off the actual stems. They just crush the grapes uh, with the stems on. This basically creates a bunch of channels uh, that allows the juice to sort of run through, and it, it basically makes her really clean juice to start your fermentation with. Um, this often leads to um, again, very focused flavors, a little bit lighter body, um, but for her, she, she has no struggle getting texture out of this wine, and that's coming from the actual age of the grapes as opposed to, uh, or the age of the vines, uh, rather than manipulation in the cellar. Um, this wine was uh, fermented in, uh, I believe, in a combination of tank and barrel, but mostly in barrel. The barrels that she's using are, are mostly quite old, which means that they've sort of already given all their flavor. Um, so you're ending with something that's, you know, you're aging in basically a neutral vessel that just happens to be made out of oak. Um, so there's very little oak influence here. You're not actually tasting wood. Um, you're just tasting, you know, the actual grapes themselves. Um, as mentioned before, this is planted on, uh, all these vineyards are planted on uh, predominantly limestone soils, but... Um, with an amount of, of clay sort of marls in there as well, um, which sort of balances the soils. If you have pure limestone, it's quite challenging for the grapes to extract certain nutrients, uh, and they can become quite nutrient deficient. If you look at places like Chablis that have super chalky soils, or even places like Champagne, you'll often notice a lot of the vines look quite yellow, and that's because they're, they're not actually able to access the iron in the soil um, because of A, the pH of the soil, and then B, the, the composition being, um, you know, that, that sort of limestone. Um, so for me, if, if you're looking for sort of a comparison on, on what this should taste like, it still does truly taste like burgundy, um, but for me, it has even this extra edge of, of minerality. Uh, when I was writing a tasting note for this, I, I literally couldn't think of any words to describe what it actually tasted like. So it's it's very much a, a prose-driven tasting note. So I, I hope you'll uh, forgive me for not being particularly useful. Um, so Claire Nodin herself, uh, she basically took over the winery uh, about 25 years ago uh, from her father, who was quite successful as a winemaker, but I think she really pushed the wines to a new level. Um, her connection to the land and her um, just aptitude for winemaking, her, her understanding of fermentation and, and you know what's actually happening, um, 
I think that's really what's given her an edge and uh, why so many people are completely blown away by her wines. I was reading some reviews the other day and everybody who talked about her wines were just like completely astonished by how pure and lively and, and you know, always mentioning the fact that they have this supreme floral element to them, especially in the red wines. Um, that's just, again, obviously very enjoyable. Um, her husband, uh, Simon Bizeau, um, incredible winemaker as well. You can see them sort of like maybe playing off one another. Maybe it's like a little bit of an internal family competition, but I think maybe more than that, it's it's uh, infinite support uh, for one another. You can definitely see the family resemblance when you taste his wines as well. Um, and it's weird because it's, it's not really commonly known. Uh, Bizeau is definitely... I would argue more famous um, than Claire Nodane, despite the wines being of at least equivalent quality. Uh, so it's it's you know she's sort of the unsung hero here. But um, again, I, I think that he probably enjoys drinking her wines uh, as much as I do. <laughs> uh, so the second wine that we have uh, from Claire Nodane, um, we decided to double up on Claire Nodane this month because these wines are so rare. We only get one shipment a year. We have to pre-order uh, it. You know. Basically, in January, we had to pre-order to get the wines right now. Uh, and so it's, you know, th these wines are incredibly rare, at least on our market. Um, and so we definitely wanted to include two of them because <laughs> I thought it was just, it made the most amount of sense. Um, so the second wine that we have uh, sort of talks about the second half of her business, which is um, what we would call, I don't know, there's, there's a couple different words for, for this style of winemaking, but ultimately she's buying grapes. Um, so we would call this sort of like a negociant, uh, so a nego like a negotiant, I suppose. Um, the idea behind this is that in years where you have challenging weather, uh, which has been the case for the last, I don't know, decade in Burgundy, where you've had things like frost and hail, uh, things like wind and rain during fruit set, so when the grapes are actually turning from flowers into fruit, uh, when that happens, it can absolutely kill your crop. So she's basically been forced to try and find other grapes to work with because her harvests have been so small the last you know decade, basically. Um, and so she started this sort of negociant style business where she's purchasing grapes from friends of hers and other organic farmers to make uh, a handful of cuvées. Um, in this case, we have her gamay, which is coming from um, a site that's uh, quite, <laughs> quite a ways away from where she is, 200 kilometers away from where her actual winery is, basically. Um, and, uh, and she trucks the grapes in, uh, like they're, they're harvested in the morning in, in tiny little boxes. Then all those grapes get put into a refrigerated truck and transported to the winery, uh, you know, which is like two, two, two and a half hours away, something like that. Uh, probably on these crazy backcountry roads in France. If you've ever driven in France, you'll totally know what I'm talking about. Um, and she gets the grapes to the winery and then, and then makes them. And this gives her a really amazing opportunity to A, work with fruit from outside of her her region so she can sort of flex her creative muscles, um, but also um, basically help, you know, supplement her, her production in years that are uh, a little more challenging in one region versus another region. Um, there's certain regions in France that get a lot less hail or a lot less, um, you know, wind and rain and different things like that. Burgundy's, for all the, the love that we give Burgundy, it's actually a challenging place to grow grapes, uh, especially in certain vintages for sure. Um, 
you know, vintages like 2011 were, you know, almost across the board kind of a ca- catastrophe. Uh, <laughs> and so it's, you know, all, for all the praise that we give it, it's definitely still a challenging place to, uh, to actually make wines. Um, so this is made from from Gamay Noir. Um, Gamay, obviously one of our favorite grapes. Uh, we've used Gamay in the club quite often. Uh, a lot of the people who are in the club really like Gamay, so we've uh, we've tried to, you know, supply them with as much as they can possibly drink. Um, this is grown on pink granite soils. Uh, Beaujolais, or sorry, uh, Gamay Noir loves um, loves granite. I feel like anywhere that you see granite, you should definitely plant Gamay. Uh, you see Beaujolais being the most famous region um, for Gamay Noir, and it's, you know, on a variety of different types of granite. Uh, you see places like southern Chile, uh, where you should definitely be planting Gamay on the granite soils that you have down there, and versions that I've tasted have been super spectacular. So I feel like anywhere you see granite, you should definitely see Gamay Noir as well. Um, Gamay, again, being the grape of Beaujolais, makes these bright, juicy, fresh wines, but they're also packed with flavor. Um, unlike Pinot Noir, that, that tends to be um, not like dilute necessarily, but definitely has um, more sort of like ethereal sort of wispy flavors. Um, Gamay tends to be a little bit more saturated, more dark fruit, um, like blackberries, you know, dark cherries, things like that. And then this really beautiful uh, spice and, and floral overtone, which is often described as being like violet and black pepper, um, two flavors that I absolutely adore in, in wine and I think really makes Gamay uh, incredible for pairing with a variety of different foods. Um, she's doing a pretty traditional fermentation here. So she's doing a uh, whole cluster fermentation. So if you'll think back to, I think it was last month, either last month or the month before, we talked about carbonic maceration. Um, This wine undergoes uh, what we call semi-carbonic maceration. So the grapes are basically fermenting from the inside out. uh, And this creates a handful of really bright, juicy fruit flavors, um, but also softens the tannins, softens the acidity, uh, makes the wine a lot more uh, approachable in its youth. Um, But a lot of people also argue that it, uh, it either adds complexity or detracts from complexity, depending on which person you're talking to. I think in its youth, it detracts from complexity, but I think as the wines age, they really, um, you know, start to show themselves a lot more, uh, which is important. Um, I said that this wine is is really, well, actually, I I asked Mark what he would pair with this wine, uh, because you always get my recommendations, and they tend to veer towards my particular palate. Uh, But Mark said that he would uh, definitely drink this wine with duck. And I think that's a genius idea. Um, you know, I, I'm always trying to go off the deep end and trying to come up with interesting pairings, but I think sometimes a classic is just a really great idea. Um, so, you know, just like pan-seared duck breast or, or duck confit, uh, I think either of those would be really great options with this. Um, think kind of like Thanksgiving dinner vibes. Uh, that's definitely a, a really decent pairing with this wine. So the last wine that we have, um, from an entirely different producer from an entirely different country, this is Cantina Maralina, uh, and this wine is called Sicele. Um, this is a project that's in uh, Sicily, so southern Italy, um, 
it's really interesting because Sicily is actually a lot closer to Africa than it is to uh, northern Italy. And so you end up with this really interesting sort of mix of different cultures. You see a lot of things like uh, citrus and savory dishes in Sicily. Uh, you see a lot of things like nuts uh, in savory dishes. You see a lot of things like dried fruits in savory dishes, whether that be raisins or figs or th things like that. Um, so their influence is, is, it's almost this quasi, you know, Africa meets the Middle East meets uh, Italian. And I think this makes it one of the most intriguing regions uh, in in the entire world as far as uh, you know, sort of culinary expressions. Not only that, but I'm pretty sure they're the ones who invented gelato. Uh, so I, I feel like we should definitely be praising them for that more often. Um, this area, climatically speaking, is very much Mediterranean. It is hot, it is dry, um, and uniquely, uh, I guess not uniquely, but one of the things that makes it stand out in the world is, again, limestone soils. Uh, these calcareous soils that are, are sort of gleaming and white. They're basically just reflecting that sunlight directly back onto the grapes, which um, makes the growing season very intense. The grape varieties that are historically grown here have evolved over the course of um, hundreds, if not thousands of years to adapt to this particular climate. Um, a lot of the grape varieties that they use, uh, you know, things like Nero d'Avola, which we'll talk about today, are incredibly drought resistant and heat resistant. You'll start seeing a lot more people around the world planting it as we start to have issues with climate change in, in historically, um, you know, grape growing regions. Uh, places like um, Australia and South Africa are planting a lot with these grape varieties because, you know, the water that it takes to to grow Cabernet Sauvignon or Syrah in such a hot climate is absolutely outrageous. It, it just doesn't make sense. Um, so eventually, at some point, we need to, <laughs> you know, start adapting to these these different grape varieties. So Nero d'Avola being a really great example. Um, Cantina Marlina, as an actual estate, um, this uh, this project is is basically run by um, Marlina Paterno now. Uh, as well as her sister uh, Federica. And um, basically the, their father who purchased this vineyard after working for years and years and years um, at sort of big commercial wineries saw this as sort of, you know, a little bit of an oasis for his family. Um, a good reason for to start basically a family business, something that could be maybe multi-generational, um, but a way of, of working with the family, which I think is a, a very sort of noble idea. Um, since these two sisters took over the winery, they've really moved towards things like permaculture. So growing a handful of different, uh, you know, different species between the actual rows in order to increase biodiversity in the vineyard, as well as, you know, counteracting things like, you know, pests and, um, and rots and, and things like water retention using plants especially indigenous plants, in order to accomplish those goals as opposed to using things like irrigation or pesticides or herbicides or, um, you know, any other sort of harmful, harmful chemicals that you can think of. So their transition to this, to this style of farming has been really, um, really amazing. Not only that, but they want to keep everything really traditional in the winery as well. So most of the fermentation here is actually happening in uh, extremely large concrete tanks. So 
if you look back even as far as Roman times, concrete was often the vessel used for fermentation. It's neutral, so it's not like oak where it's imparting oaky flavors. You're not getting concretey flavors uh, out of a wine aged in concrete, but it does breathe the same way that oak does. It is somewhat porous, um, so it allows what we call micro-oxygenation, which is uh, basically tiny amounts of oxygen getting into the wine, which allows for certain chemical reactions like polymerizations of tannins uh, to happen. This basically means that the wine ends up being softer um, because of this micro-oxygenation. Uh, back in the late 90s and early 2000s, there was a very famous uh, guy named Michel Roland, who is uh, basically like the highest paid wine consultant of all time. And he was a really big advocate for micro-oxygenation. They used all these crazy micro-ox tools in order to like get tiny amounts of oxygen into the wine. And, you know, he was the one who was making wines so that, uh, that Robert Parker, the famous wine critic, would like them. Basically, some a winery would reach out and be like, hey, I want Robert Parker to give me a high score. And he'd be like, cool, I'll tell you how to do it. Get your grapes super ripe and then micro-oxygenate them. Uh, so it's it's really funny that this is like actually a very classic practice, um, especially in places like southern Italy. So Nero d'Avola as a grape variety tends to be quite intensely flavored. It tends to focus usually mostly on dark fruit flavors, um, on like blackberry and plum, things kind of like that, almost always this like chocolate note to it. Um, but I find this version also has a little bit of red fruit to it, almost this like really bright uh, maraschino cherry skin kind of characteristic, um, a little more almost rose petal, things like that. Um, it's a really beautiful style. This is also sort of maybe the more sturdy wine that we've ever put into wine club. Uh, often the wines that we like to drink are a little bit lower in tannin, uh, but we decided to sort of celebrate tannin this month. This wine actually has some grip. So tannins are um, basically phenolic compounds that dry out your mouth. Um, I, I can't remember exactly how it works, but something along the lines of it, it literally breaks up your saliva molecules. Uh, so it, it basically stops you from, from being able to salivate properly. So that's that drying effect that you get from uh, from certain bigger, bolder red wines. And this definitely has that in spades, uh, which makes it a really phenomenal wine for food. It basically cleanses your palate between every bite of food. So if you're having something like, um, you know, really rich, meaty sauces with pasta, this is this is sort of an ideal option. Um, I think that when you're when it comes to Italian wine more than any other wine, I really like pairing them with traditional foods, uh, foods that actually come from the region. So here, uh, my recommendations were all from from Carnale, uh, which is one of our favorite sort of local restaurants here in in Calgary. Um, they don't carry any of our wine, so I think I'm allowed technically advertising for them. Uh, <laughs> I think that's how that works according to the new AGLC rules. I guess they're not new rules, it's just that they're never actually enforced until uh, until they decide to enforce them for us. Um, so yeah, I recommended a bunch of uh, pastas and, and, and dishes from them, um, but you, know, you could easily make something yourself. Uh, I really like the um, SPQR cookbook. Um, amazing restaurant in um, San Francisco. And so if you get a chance, like definitely look through some of their recipes. Uh, anything that they have that's sort of, you know, meat driven would go really, really well with this wine. Um, for From a flavor perspective on this, uh, because of that mild oxidation, 
you end up with sort of some really cool sort of like leathery notes, um, almost this like cinnamon spice to it. This wine is also the one of the oldest wines that we've ever put in wine club. So this is this is five years past the vintage. Um, so 2015 uh, is is when this wine was harvested, and because of that, again, you're getting a lot of more of what we call tertiary flavors. So primary flavors are, are flavor, flavors that are derived from the actual fruit itself. Um, so you know, like cherry and apricot and flowers and things like that, grass even, um, things that are derived from the actual flavor of the fruit itself. Then you have what's called secondary flavors, which are flavors that come from the winemaking process. Um, this can be the buttery quality that you get on certain wines um, that go through malolactic conversion. This can be uh, oak flavors. Um, this can be reduction. Uh, so, so some of those sort of like sulfury compounds that you get uh, these are all things that come from winemaking, and then what we uh, then we have what we would call tertiary elements, and these are flavors that come from the development of the wine after it's been made. So after the wine has already been turned from fruit into wine, um, the changes that happen either in bottle or in barrel um, or in tank, I suppose. Um, and this wine is filled with those tertiary qualities. A lot of um, again, tobacco, preserved fruits, um, you know, dried leaves, things sort of in that nature. That's all coming from the wine slowly and surely, uh, basically decomposing, which is, is kind of beautiful. Uh, you get to watch this, this wine sort of, you know, closer to the end of its life than the start of its life for sure. I still think you could age this wine for another, um, you know, two, three, four years, but I, I think that it's going to lose some of its fruit over that time. So if you really like that more savory tertiary style of wine, uh, this wine could definitely age um, physically. Uh, but I think that if you, if you, you know, value fruit characteristics, I think that drinking it now or within the next year or so is kind of the ideal time frame. Um, but yeah, really beautiful wine and absolutely amazing winery. Um, we really wanted to focus on, on female winemakers this month, uh, sort of at the start of this year, we looked at our portfolio and we're like, Hey, we've, we're sort of underrepresenting female winemakers at the moment. We want to get our portfolio up way closer to 50, 50. Um, and at the time it was not even close. Uh, and so we decided to add, uh, Cantina Marlina, who again, we, we had admired for a really long time. They're imported by, uh, Zev Rovine in the States, who's, uh, an importing agency that we really look up to. Like if we're looking for inspiration on what's cool and exciting in the wine world, we definitely look towards their portfolio. Um, and then with Claire Nodin, it was it was sort of a no-brainer. We had wanted to work with those wines for basically since we first started. Uh, and then last year we got the opportunity to go visit her uh, in Burgundy and that sort of sealed the deal for us being able to finally get an allocation. Um, and so, yeah, that, that was sort of our focus this month. Um, next month is going to be particular spe particularly special. Uh, we went way above and beyond uh, in order to get you guys something really cool for the, for the new year. Um, I'm sure some of you can guess maybe a particular theme, um, but it's, it's going to be well worth your while uh it took uh it, it took some seriously uh some serious finagling on our part but it was all worth it uh so that's basically everything we have to talk about this month if you have any further questions feel free to send me an email my email address is eric e-r-i-k at juiceimports.com you can also go to our website which is www.juiceimports.com and uh you know basically now it's it's just going to be word of mouth um 
for sharing this wine club. So we can no longer advertise it. We can no longer tell people about it. So hopefully you'll continue to share it with your friends, get people to sign up. Um, you know, we'd really appreciate that, obviously, uh, as well as the, the stores would really appreciate that. So now sign up is only via the actual stores. Um, again, I'm sure you know where you pick it up from, so I don't need to mention them by name. But um, yeah, thank you again for all your support. We really appreciate it. We couldn't do it without you. And uh, we look forward to sharing more wine next month. Cheers. Cheers.